The wish for healing, said Seneca, has always been half of health. Oh, well, Lord, I wish healing on all the wounded and brokenhearted of your people. I wish strength and protection for your soldiers. I wish a vision of victory for all of those who seek the glory of your name in the world. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is a little bit of the pretaste of what's coming in the Jewish Heroism Project. Here I am sitting with Rav Johnny Solomon, known as the Virtual Rabbi. And when we were speaking about your title, you said just a teacher and someone who tries to help. And I have to tell you um, that there's probably nothing more important, in my humble opinion, right now than those who are willing to teach a little Torah and help those around you. So, Rav Johnny, thank you so much for joining me here on what will soon be the Jewish Heroism Project, but right now is simply a conversation. How are you I'm doing this afternoon? Uh, I'm doing okay. As we know, these are tough times, but uh, I'm doing all right, and I'm very pleased to be speaking with you, of Mike. Yes, in, indeed, likewise, and they are tough times, and so therefore I want to jump right in because I don't know about you. I've never had a feeling that time is more precious right now and yet been more profoundly challenged by what to do with it. <laughs> Uh, sometimes it's all a rush and other times it just seems to be a vast open space. So what I'd like to start with is actually what led me to reach out to you um, in order to have this conversation. We had a little back and forth on Facebook. Nobody nervous. It was a, a, a pleasant, positive back and forth. But it sprung it from a, I think so. I mean, it sprung no, it from always a sense. Is. I always try and make sure it's, I mean, I, I don't do negative. Oh, well, that's good. You're probably not on Twitter then. Um, no, I avoid it. Well, that's because the, the only thing really that travels on Twitter is negativity, but we don't need to go into that right now, I say. Um, so, so with your permission, I was going to re- repeat to people that um, the, the, initial, the initial, uh, initial exchange, which was that um, your sense that perhaps time doesn't heal all wounds, right? It's a, a common statement that people make, you know, time heals all wounds. And you, you, you put up as a question, I don't actually have it in front of me, but if I recall correctly, in the sense that maybe, maybe this one time won't do it. Um, and I respond to do something which, which to me in my work, both as a counselor and in my own personal work of processing grief in my own life and, and in the little bits of intergenerational grief, which I like probably every Jew out there carries around. What I've come to think of is that it's really only time plus work that heals all wounds. And so I guess my first question to you is that there are a tremendous amount of grief out there in Am Yisrael right now. Um, what do you think the work is that we can bring to bear on trying to digest, even in the midst of a time of war, some of that grief? Well, well just, to, just to kind of correct slightly what you said, what I wrote wasn't a question, it was a statement. You know, people uh-huh. say time heals, it doesn't. Um, now, Fair enough. We've gone through this massive national uh, loss, this massacre, that's taken place, you know, not far from where I live, not so far from where you live, and we're all still reeling. Uh, we're all still having sleepless nights. We're all still trying to comfort the bereaved and, and worried about those who are missing, those who are still being held hostage. We're all still part of uh, a story which is by no means over. So we're in the midst still of the storm. And so in many ways, the comment you may well say is kind of like, uh, premature when you're in the middle of something to claim that somehow time would have healed is of course somewhat absurd and that's partially true I suppose my comment was that it's already two and a half uh, weeks since that 
terrible day. And me and so many others are still just randomly bursting into tears, uh, rethinking what happened and thinking about what is still happening. And the raw, the wound is so raw and we need to be gentle with each other. Uh, and we also need to recognize that this is different. This is firstly, uh, in terms of state of Israel, there's been lots of actions, but it's a first war that most people my age and certainly younger have gone through. Uh, secondly, as many people are recorded, this is the most amount of Jews massacred in a day since the time of the Holocaust. And that makes you shudder. It makes you shudder even more than that took place in the state of Israel. And so this is different in so many different ways, which we don't need to go through. The facts already been um, recorded in many different places. I want to stress these are facts and not opinions, as some yeah. media outlets may well say. <laughs> yeah. And then you ask the question is, okay, well, you have to kind of know how then how to deal with this new reality um, and how we can perhaps find some healing uh, even amidst the storm and certainly as time then progresses, as we deal with the aftermath of 1,400 murdered and killed and still many uh, in a state of unknown. And so I, I, you, know, you use the word in our exchange, healing. Now, mm -hmm. what, what is healing in a situation like this? Obviously, on a practical level, healing is that all those who are missing or hostage come back safely because there's a practical amount of we are missing part of our limbs, which is the Jewish people. Some of them are displaced and we want them home. We need them home and we pray for their return. I mean, but alongside that practical reality, which absent of that, it is impossible to heal. It's really important. You know, you can't heal when a limb of yours is somewhere else. Um, your body may well trying to figure out how to put skin over a wound, but that's not called healing. That's called adapting. Um, uh, uh, so what is healing? Healing, well, healing on a on a medical level is, is different to healing from a spiritual. We're both speaking kind of from a from a spiritual uh, and, and human perspective, not from a medical perspective. Healing is making the pain a little bit less, but not taking away the injury. You know. What do you mean? I'll, I'll, I suppose I'll describe it in, in practice because uh, I'm not so much a theoretician, right? Okay. I'm, I'm somebody who tries to live what I say. So I went to visit a number of families who were sitting shiver, whose uh, sons or daughters were either murdered. Uh, no, they were, they were all murdered. One was through the line of duty as a soldier, one through going out to try and save lives in Be'eri, and one who was at this party in uh, Re'im, uh, where they butcher Jews. I mean, let's be perfectly There's clear. There's nothing else to call it. Um, so what is healing? So, I, you know, I, I the, the first, actually there was a second ship I went to, it was in Kiryat Gat, uh, near where I live. And there's a, a family of Russian descent. They've been living in Israel 30, 40 years. They're, they're actually sitting in a bomb shelter because the city have said, you need a place where many people can visit you and we've got rockets showering on our city. Here's a bomb shelter to sit, which is itself obviously strange. But I came on a Motzei Shabbat. I was still wearing my Shabbat clothes. And this is a less religious family, evidently. Um, and and they kind of said, I came into the room and they said, kind of, who are you? Uh, not rudely, but in a certain sense of, 
a lot of people are coming here that we censor the age and stage of our daughter or their family and friends, and we don't necessarily recognize you. And I sat down and I said, you're right, you don't know me. I live in a nearby yeshuv and I'm pained by your loss. I've come to offer you words of comfort and just sit with you. And both the mother and father teared up and then started to share, started to talk and express deep appreciation of me and my wife coming to sit with them. That doesn't remove the injury. They just buried their daughter. That right. loss exists. But what is healing? Healing, you know, Rabbi Hirsch uh, has a kind of an interesting approach of uh, understanding the etymology of biblical words. And one of the translations that he defines of the root, reish pei hei, rafa, which generally means uh, to heal, is to loosen. In that moment, that tightness in their neck was briefly loosened because they knew that somebody else was there to share in their pain. Um, that's, you know, that's, I suppose, a kind of healing that people like I can do. If you're a doctor and somebody's sick, you can do more. If you're a therapist and you have certain toolkit, then you can do more. Me, a stranger who is not necessarily qualified to do more than sit with somebody and share in their pain, but in so doing, you loosen that noose that seems to be tightening around those parents who are struggling to breathe from making sense of their loss. And you say, I'm here with you. There's that beautiful phrase of Chazal uh, reflecting the will of God, with you, with the people of Israel, I'm with you in your anguish. And that sense of presence is incredibly powerful. And so healing or being somewhat of a healer doesn't fix most things. You know, I left and there situation didn't radically change but knowing that there's one more person around you it gives you a greater sense of comfort you're not alone because so, to lose somebody is painful to feel alone having lost somebody is doubly painful which is why there's a custom that when a person buries their dead you form a, a set of rows around that person we call it a shura and according to the mystics we do that as if to be almost a wall around that person to say, you may feel vulnerable, but we'll be there surrounding you. We'll be there protecting you. We'll stand by uh, alongside you as you deal with your grief. And there have been lots of shurot in that physical respect, but also through the deeds that people are doing. So that's, shall we say, an expression of, of an act of healing, not full healing, not comprehensive, not even substantive. But it's a gesture of healing to so to somebody who is in pain. So, so this is really I appreciate the fact that you phrased it. You're not a theoretician, but a, a person of practice, because this is something that I think that anyone can strive to do. Um, I, I I hear you say, if I heard you correctly, that that you may not be able to fix the wound, but what you can do is help bear the burden, mm. right? That because. Mm. If we go all the way back, you know, we're here in the weekly Parsha readings, still in the beginning of Bereshit, we know that the original Loto, before there was even evil in the world, hmm. the first indication that something could be not good was Loto Viota Dam It's not good for a human being to be alone. And um, one of the great challenges of pain is it becomes all-consuming. Hmm. We feel shut off even when we're sitting next to people. 
So if I understand you correctly, that, that a piece of the work we can do is, is really livui. When we call, you know, we call a, a funeral a levaya, that we escort. Now, usually we think about that escorting the dead to their sort of final rest in this world. But, but what you're pointing out is, is that the living need escort as much, if not more, um, mm. because if we can't heal the wound, physicians should heal, therapists should heal, soldiers should fight, everyone should do what they can do. But something that we can all do is make sure that no one stands alone, that we bear that burden together. And, and I appreciate that. And on that note, I want to uh, share with you a thought and see what you think about it. Um, one of the things I've been asking of myself, of, of my, my friends, my students, my family, you know, people say, well, what should we be praying for right now? I think there's many things, but the one I've settled on more than anything else is the kut. A sense of, of cleaving that, 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 that there, something has been broken in the world for a long time, to be honest with you. Um, and we could go into the whys and wherefores. But, but when I identify what that breaking is, it's the intimate connection between creator and creation. Something that humanity as a whole is tasked with maintaining. And I think that the Jewish people in particular... Um, because of our thousands of years of working at it, have a particular talent. And yet, there's a rifui, to use that word that you mentioned. Like, there's a certain loosening um, a, that, that, that we feel with each other. Because, of course, the vekut isn't actually first indicated in the Torah between humanity and God or God and creation, but actually between right, husband and wife, between people. Um, and we saw the events, you know, and how ironic it appears if that's even the right word, to look back at Yom Kippur in the light of Simchat Torah. Right? In the sense that, wow, there's Perud Ba'am. There's a, there's a sense that we're divided. And even if I could say, and I really mean that in a positive sense, we're divided because people care about things. I don't think it was a, it was a, a causeless division. It may have been a lot of causeless hatred, but it wasn't causeless division. But if the problem is division, if what people need to heal is someone to help them bear their burden, then I wonder what you think about the task being vekut and how that might help people um, overcome a sense of, of crisis. I've spoken to a lot of people who, who would deeply, I would characterize them, they would characterize themselves as deeply observant of Torah and mitzvot, who are nonetheless feeling a sense of crisis in their faith that something has indeed gone wrong. So I'm I'm wondering if what, what that says to you, that says it's vekut and and what you also think about, uh, you know, is there a crisis of faith out there? Do you feel it in yourself? Do you see it in others? What would you, um, what would you recommend to people to strengthen themselves? Or maybe not. Maybe now is the time to just accept the fact that we don't understand and, uh, and sit in that. Your thoughts? So I'm still processing the, the application of concept of Dveikut, although in terms of that sense of cleaving and of being, of standing shoulder to shoulder, and of um, supporting one another, most certainly it's relevant. Uh, is there a crisis of faith? I mean, I, I've actually been talking about a crisis of faith for the past couple of years, meaning immaterial of that, there's been an ebbing away of clarity about our relationship with God uh, and sometimes our discourse about God. Um, and then say, things say, like wait, this... Say, say a word more about that before you just rush by such an important topic. What do you mean by that? An ebbing of clarity in our relationship and even the discourse around that relationship with God. I, I think there is a lot here. I'm, I'm specifically referring to um, religious Jews. I mean, obviously religious other people, but here I'm specifically talking about religious Jews that all too often we let the demands of 
religion override our need for connection with God, and we supplement religious ritual for divine union. And wait, wait, wait. we supplement religious ritual for divine union. And what would divine union look like? I know what religious ritual looks like. Trust me. Religious ritual is meant to also contain divine union. Yes, but all too often. The religious ritual seems is hollow. It's missing that kernel, right? That inner uh, nucleus of a divine union, and that hollowness of religious ritual, absent of divine union, can make a person feel that religion doesn't speak to them. But in actual fact, they've been, you know, being given using the wrong kind of drug. It's missing the core ingredient, yeah. and that core ingredient is God. And too often we seem to think that religion is equivalent to God. Religion is meant to be a vehicle to connect to God, but only if you do so intentionally, deliberately. Um, you can do religion and absent God from that practice. And in hey, so some, doing... Sometimes it's easier. <laughs> right. But in so doing, uh, after a while, you actually lose faith in your faith. But in fact, you never necessarily even had it in the first place. You're losing faith in your religious practice which was missing this ingredient called God. Uh, well, I'm just going to say it straight out. Where is God? I think I've heard that question from more than one person, including my own children, in the last three weeks. So I'll, I'll, I'll respond. Firstly, I, 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 nobody should ever think they are the spokesman of God. Uh, and certainly no clergy should think that's the case. What I'm going to do is I'll share you an idea from the Torah. Because, okay. you see, th this is an important, just a methodological thing. If I can't, I can't speak for God, but I can learn a little bit of Torah. And the Torah, I believe to be an expression of God's words and will. So if I learn Torah, I'm more likely to have a sense of how God interacts with the world than if I just come up with some random idea, which is kind of Johnny's thoughts of the day. Might be an so I want to show you an idea. Not necessarily divinely so. Right. I want to show you an idea which blew me away some years ago. And I think we should all bear this in mind in every single day, and especially in moments like this. I am listening. And it's based on an essay of Rabbi Soloveitchik called Redemption Prayer Talmud Torah. And he raises a very interesting textual question about the story of the slavery in Egypt and the redemption from Egypt. And he notes, if you look at chapter one of Shemot, uh, the Jews were enslaved. The Jews are being are being hurt by the Egyptians. They're being uh, tortured by the Egyptians. And yet there's no reference that they cry out to God. In fact, when you read the verses, there's no mention that they're crying out to anything. We're told that they were beaten by the Egyptians. We're not told about their reply. And then what happens is Moses sees that an Egyptian is beating an Israelite, and he intervenes. He does something about it. And... After this happens, we read that the Israelites cry out to God from their anguish. <laughs> and Rabbi Soloveitchik says, what happened? They were being, they were being tortured before, they're being tortured after. How come previously there's no reference to their crying and afterwards there is? And he suggests, based on the Tsar, that it's precisely because Moshe spoke up for the injustice taking place. Moshe got involved. And by seeing that somebody cares, the people almost gave themselves permission to cry out. Previously, mm. they thought, who cares about my cries? Because 
If I cry, nobody's going to do anything. But when they saw that even one person did something to stand up for injustice, they realized that their cries counted. And therefore, they cried out to God. And by crying out to God, then the story then unfolds. Now, that has tremendous applications. There are lots of people, again, just putting aside our current difficult reality. There are lots of people in, for example, bad relationships who don't cry out, not because they're not in pain, it's because they don't think that people are ready there to listen to them. And what you need to do is demonstrate through your engagement with them, through your words with them, that you're listening. And that gives them permission, not real permission, but psychological permission to say, I'm going to cry out. In fact, studies that Pause, yeah. pause for a second. And I think it's very important. I want to make sure I understand um, that because for, for many years, I've also been fascinated by the sort of the people crying out as the turning point in redemption. Yeah. And I've emphasized to my own self and, and, and to my students that, that like, because I'll say that when it hurts, a person cries out. And if they don't, it's because, as you pointed out, they don't believe that help lies out there. But now I hear you adding what is a profoundly essential and very practical element, which is that we don't have to wait for people to believe that their cry will matter. We have to demonstrate through our care that even if we can't help them, we, we care nonetheless. We'll, we Correct. are willing to try, and in that it opens up almost a redemptive space in the people who see us acting. Whether our action changes the reality or not. I mean, Moshe killed one Egyptian, what did it do? He, he ended up getting, he had to run, run away. I mean, he didn't actually change anything. But if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that in the same way that, that an individual has a capacity to heal by helping those around them bear their burden to whatever extent they, they can, so too mm -hmm. the individual has the ability to open up a space for a redemptive mode of faith by acting in ways that show that they care. Right, exactly. Which is why I said to you, I'm not a theoretician, because it's through the deeds that one demonstrates one's words. Almost... Yeah, you speak with your actions, right? And this applies in so many different ways. We spoke before that we do similar work. I'm a spiritual coach. People call me for different parts of the world. And sometimes a person presents a scenario which I, I really can't fix. I mean, not just I can't fix. I, I don't know if they can. But by listening and by giving that time and that attentiveness and perhaps some wisdom maybe some practical help wherever they may well be, it helps them find their path to redemption and it gives them permission to cry out. And just as a quick aside, we shouldn't forget that sa'aka, crying out, is equivalent to tefillah, of prayer. Prayer right. is ultimately crying out. So by being present, by getting involved in even the most minor of ways, you tell a person that you can. Now, the weird thing is, and Rav Soloveitchik talked about this, how come the people didn't cry out they were being tortured before? They were being tortured, they were numb of that torture, meaning it, it became the norm. Mm -hmm. It's only when somebody protests and say, this is not normal, you actually feel the pain sharper in that moment, but then you find the words to express how abnormal, how wrong, how unjust what's happening is. Now, returning back to what's been taking place in Israel over the past three weeks, by visiting families, by, by listening to stories, by doing volunteerism, in, in whichever which way that people are doing things, we're making it clear that 
this is abnormal. Um, we're making it clear that this is wrong. And we as a Jewish people are crying out. We're crying out and we're saying, we are not going to suffer this anymore. And that zakat is coming from Jews throughout Israel and around the world for that matter, because everybody's in pain. And that zakat is actually a means towards redemption. That zakat is a tefillah. You know, it's interesting. A number of people uh, have said they're struggling with prayer. And I totally get it. I'm struggling with prayer. I pray three times a day. I'm struggling with prayer, not because I don't know the words. It's because my head is just in so many different places. But there's a really Focus profound is a idea. Precious commodity right now. Right. But I'll, I'll tell you um, uh, two ideas. But I'll tell you actually three ideas about prayer. I often share this with my clients, uh, and I think it's incredibly important. Idea number one from Rav Cook. Rav Cook, in his introduction to Sidu or Latriya, says something crucial. The soul is always praying. It's just that sometimes we give a formal expression to that prayer, which we call tefillah. But the soul is always praying because that's what a soul is. The soul is a beacon, right? Pinging up to Shaman, pinging up to God. So we should never lose faith that we're not praying because our soul is always praying. That's point number one. Point number two is a brilliant reading of a biblical story by Rabbi Sachs. He refers to how Yitzchak went to meditate in the field, which we interpret to mean Yitzchak went to pray in the field. It says, It says, Lasur, we generally translate this to meditate, but in modern Hebrew, sicha, even in biblical Hebrew, sicha means a conversation. And uh, Rabbi Sachs therefore explains that prayer is a form of conversation, but then he flips it the other way around. A conversation can be a form of prayer. Right now, we're having a conversation. This is itself a prayer. Together, we are praying of Am Yisrael finding ways to find healing. We're not begin, you know, we're not standing with our feet together, but every word that we're uttering is a prayer that things get a little bit better, that Amen. people feel a little bit more comforted. And too often we have a narrow definition of prayer, but if our soul is always praying, and if every conversation can be a prayer, then even the people who think they're not praying, when they're checking on their neighbor, that's a prayer. Right When they're bringing food parcels to soldiers, that's a prayer. And I'll say one further thing. Uh, most famously, when Abraham Joshua Heschel marched with Martin Luther King, uh, he famously said, I was praying with my feet, meaning through marching with Martin Luther King, my deeds were an expression of prayer. And, and I absolutely believe him. Meaning he's saying, through my march with Martin Luther King, I was expressing a deep value that I believe that we should recognize the 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 uh, spark of God in every human being, that every person is created in the divine image. Some people then rubbish that by doing terrible deeds, but we but need to stand up this for that. This is the capacity that. of the human being. Right. So so Heschel made it clear that he was praying with his feet. And, and I see in my community that people who have been displaced and they come passing by and, you know, half an hour message, uh, like... In 30 minutes, please bring food to this place. People are hungry or people are uh, displaced or people don't have a place to sleep. And it happens. It happens to him every single day. My community and so many others are doing things. In my house, my, my daughter was baking, you know, praying with her baking, literally making a cake with love, right? And we were bringing food with love and we were providing bedding, whatever, with love. 
And each of those deeds is a prayer. It's a prayer that you should look after yourself. You should be all right. And in and times like this... That, uh, that ability to heal by, by bearing the burden. Right, and, and, exactly. And, and cleaving with each other. I want, I want to pull back the lens a second. Uh, because you said something that we've all been saying, and it's, yeah, I heard President Herzog say it, and with it, this Simchat Torah was the worst day that Jewish people have faced since the Holocaust. Mm. Now, on one hand, as soon as we reference the Shoah, uh, all questions of scale go out the window. I mean, that's why we're using it. It's both literally true, but it also it almost metaphysically is a, is a marker in our experience. At the same time, it's important, I think, to note that Another way to phrase that is, this is the worst day we've had in 80 years. Now, as a people who have been striving on our mission in creation for more than 3,000, I think it's a very important turnaround to note that, I, I don't know if, if you grew up with Holocaust survivors or how much um, sort of intimate relationship. I grew up in, in a family where all of my father's family were survivors and it was, a, it was a central part. I'm also happened personally to be that classic third generation in that I was the first one to hear the stories of my great aunt from Auschwitz. And some other time we can talk about the trauma that I'm reprocessing after 30 right, years yeah. of, of trying to you know, get that out of my head, to be frank with you. Um, but one of the things that always struck me is how full of life, how full of life these people were, that they mm. went through the gates of hell and built thriving lives, had children and grandchildren and, and businesses and bar mitzvahs and, and flower beds and weddings. And, and so, so um, I guess what I'm wondering is they had a vision that could sustain them. And I don't want to go into necessarily the vision that I think it was, but I'm curious what you think. What's the vision? I have a deep belief that vision is an essential aspect of healing. You're correct. The body will crust over. We will scar. We will scab. We will adapt. And in the midst of a crisis as we're facing today, it's crucial to stand together and to bear the burden and not to go too far afield. But, but I do want, in the last few minutes that we have together, just to pull back the lens of a little bit. I've, this is my first question for you is, what vision would you say is important for us to begin to cultivate, to speak about, to think about, that would actually draw forth from us the powers to, to do what I see to be the core Jewish method of healing, which is transforming suffering and pain into a source of positive identity. Like you're saying, in the immediate, that's action. Right? That's what I hear you saying, is that with mm -hmm. the response to pain, is as, as Rosa Zolvechik actually says in the introduction to the Kolo Dido Fake, is not, right, Lama, like, why did this happen? Or, but, but lima, like for what? Meaning, what should I do? That's the immediate, and I think it's a very powerful message, which I appreciate you emphasizing. But I do think that there is an important piece. What are we working toward? Because I feel like part of the crisis of faith that you identified isn't just a, di a dialogue with God. I think that we have begun to narrow our vision. So what, is there a big vision you see out there that you feel could, could bring the energy that, that we could work toward for healing in the same way all of my relatives lived unbelievably rich lives after Auschwitz? So, so to answer, let's use that, the Hebrew word for vision, which is chazon. Interestingly, chazon, the shoresh, the root of that is chet zayn nun, which is often translated as chazan, uh, which actually has a number of different meanings in the rabbinic uh, writings, but most famously, it's a, it's a prayer leader. A chazan 
uh, actually means also a Torah teacher, uh, but let's focus on the most familiar uh, definition, a prayer leader. So you ask, how, how come your grandparents, and, you know, how my, my grandparents weren't survived, but my grandmothers, well, her cousins were murdered. And, you know, certainly we all were raised with this strong awareness of, uh, of the Shoah that was definitional in my Jewish education. Yeah, well said, definitional. Um, so what is a vision? Well, let's actually just think about the role of a chazan. A chazan, by the way, isn't just a prayer leader, it's a, a spiritual leader, right? Mm-hmm. It's a person who is supposed to lift people in helping them understand their relationship with God and their relationship with each, with each other in terms of tzibur, in terms of community. And there's a, an interesting din, there's an interesting rule where we say somchim gulalit fila. It's actually based on a practical thing that the last two words before we start the Amidah is ga'al Israel, the Redeemer of Israel. Then we're supposed to start the Amidah, which we define as being prayer. This idea of somchim gulalit fila, that redemption and prayer are next to each other, is I think incredibly important. And we've previously spoken about redemptive acts, right? So let's speak about a chazan who represents prayer in terms of their role in, in, in achieving redemption. So what does a chazan do? Well, the chazan doesn't just live in the moment. They don't just reflect on things happening in the here and now. They reflect on our story, our history. We begin with this Shabbat reading, which talks about Abraham's Nisyonot, uh, Abraham and Sarah, who are called upon to pass a series of challenging tests to go from place to place and encounter great challenge. And we have that heritage of our ancestors showing what Andrew Duckworth calls grittiness, right? They were able to overcome great hardship, by the way, not through talking, but through doing. Oh, I yes. just gave a share this week by Rabbach Rosenblum, and he explains what is a Nisayon, quoting the Ramban, it's to take a potential uh, of a person and translate it into action. They didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. And it's important to note that God already loved Abraham before he passed most of his tests. And so Rav Rosenblum asks, so then what's the point of the tests? The answer is to love somebody who talks the talk is great, but to love somebody who then puts that into action, that's remarkable. So Avam and Sarah, and of course Yitzchak and Yaakov, etc., they are those who showed us the way of translating uh, thoughts into deeds, of showing love as deed, as Rabbi Sachs defines Stakan, many other wonderful things. So that's what a chazan does in part. He refers back to our past. But a chazan also has a chazan, has a vision, it talks about uh, how things could be better, talks about how we need to bring justice to the world, how we can bring peace to the world, how we need to show uh, concern for each other, how we need to pray for healing and look out for each other. So Khazan also, what they try and do is call us together and say, don't just be involved in the petty of the immediate, but think about how we can be there for each other to bring about a better good for ourselves and for the world. And so in response to your question about what is a vision, uh, and again, pivoting around the word chazan and chazan, which itself is a, itself a fascinating thing. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov is himself a whole idea of what is uh, as a chazan, as a singer who brings people together. The vision is that we don't forget our story of our past, as you mentioned. We may well be reflecting back 80 years, but we also know our history from 3,000 years. And it's precisely because the Jewish people are people of memory that we haven't forgotten. 
our history for the past 3,000 years. We haven't forgotten the Amalekites. We haven't forgotten the Babylonians and the Romans. We haven't forgotten how we've been persecuted time after time. We also haven't forgotten that we've been the ones left standing. And so we're going to be victorious in our battle against our enemy. That I have no doubt about. It's because we know our story. The question then is, you ask in terms of the vision, the vision for the future. So how do we how do we bring about redemption? Well, the most redemptive book in the Bible is the one of Ruth. Um, the book of Ruth is about chesed, giving, kindness, concern, sharing in the fate of other people and immersing oneself in the faith of the Jewish people, recognizing that God exists, recognizing that we have a Jewish heritage. And that duality referred to of the covenant of fate and the covenant of destiny is what it means to be a Jew. And the Jewish people right now are have been tested in terms of their covenant of fate. And what have we proven? What we've actually proven is that covenant is still alive, to quote Rabbi Sachs. We've proven that we're still a nation who, when the going gets tough, we are there to act, and therefore we give assurance to somebody else that we care, and that paves a path towards redemption. So I think in terms of vision, we need to continue to be there for one another. We need to recognize that even the micro deed, like Moses did, which as you say, all he did is change the life of one person. But changing the life of one person changes the lives of so many because you show that you care about at least one person. And all it needs is each of us to say, I'm going to do something for one person. And that's how we change the world. So my vision is we are mourning, we are aching, we are crying, we are not sleeping. We are with those who are whose loved ones are missing, whose loved ones are being held hostage, exactly. whose loved ones have been buried. And the numbers are unbearable. Uh, oftentimes, there have been a pigua, it's a handful of families. We know everyone's name. In Israel, we always know those names. Right now, there's 14. We don't know the names, and it's not because we don't want to. It's because there's just so many. We're just so, feeling so overburdened with that pain. But my suggestion is go to a house, go to a family, identify somebody, could even be a random person like I did, and just say I'm with you. And through that gesture, through that kindness, through physically, metaphorically holding their hand, say that you care. And that's part of the way in which we left Egypt, by those deeds of loving kindness, uh, by showing that we are not just people who talk, but people who do. That's passing the test, and that's actually overcoming the challenge that's how we bring healing to the world and that's i believe how we bring redemption to the world so listen here we are i know that time is tight so rather than ask the last question i'll just leave you with this as a as a thought part of what i hear to me is the definition of of heroism the project that i'm in the process of launching the definition of heroism in the torah is misuit nefesh lemanto right an ability to go beyond oneself for the sake of good and without analyzing what good is and the essential good of creation and the moral good, but it's a going beyond of oneself. And in that, this crisis is a tremendous opportunity because one mm -hmm. thing I think we can all say for sure is that nothing should be the same in Am Yisrael after this past Simchat And that can't be an abstraction of, of ideas, as you said. It needs to be a call to action, as is all true heroism. And so therefore, really the opportunity that we have here is to be more to do more for one another, to uphold a vision of a world in which that solidarity 
isn't just a word, but it's a real stance and posture and call to action. Um, and I appreciate your words of inspiration in, in challenging me to think about when we're done with this conversation, what exactly I'm going to do with my time. Before we sign up, first I want to say thank you very much, uh, Johnny Solomon, the virtual rabbi. People want to get in touch with you, see the type of work you do, what would they do? Just Google Rabbi Johnny Solomon or the virtual rabbi. Okay, you I'm can, you can let Google... have a webpage, whatever. Great, you let Google take you there. So I want to thank you. I want to thank the Pardes Institute for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network for building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean wilderness. And I want to thank everybody out there that's listening. Go check out jewishheroism.com. It is live as of today. Let me know what you think, folks. I'm super excited. And I last of all want to thank you for listening. I'm Ron Mike Boyer. Stay tuned for the Jewish Heroism Project.